0: Sense and Sensibility, Chapter 14. The sudden termination of Colonel Brandon's visit at the park, with his steadiness in concealing its cause, filled the mind and raised the wonder of Mrs. Jennings for two or three days. She was a great wonderer, as everyone must have in all the comings and goings of all of their acquaintances. She wondered with little intermission what could be the reason for it, was sure there must be some bad news, and thought over every... In him, with a fixed determination that he should not escape them all, something very melancholy must be the matter. I am sure she said. I could see it in his face. Poor man! I am afraid his circumstances may be bad. The estate at Delaford was never reckoned more than two thousand a year, and his brother left everything, and his brother left everything sadly involved. I do think he must have been sent for about money matters. For what else can it be? I wonder whether it is so. I would give anything to know the truth of it. Perhaps it about is it is about Miss Williams, and by the by, I dare say it is, because he looked so conscious when I mentioned her. Maybe she is ill in town, nothing in the world more likely, for I have a notion she is rather sickly. I would lay any wager it is about Miss Williams. It is not very likely he should be distressed in his circumstances now, for he's a very prudent man, and to be sure he must have cleared the estate by this time. I wonder what it can be. Maybe his sister is worse at Avignon and he sent, and has sent for him over. His setting off in such a hurry seems very like it. Well, I will wish him out of all of this trouble with all my heart and a good wife into the bargain. So wondered, so talked Mrs. Jennings, her opinion varying with every fresh conjecture and all seeming equally probable as they arose. Eleanor, though she felt really interested in the welfare of Colonel Brandon, could not bestow all of the wonder of his going so suddenly away, which Mrs. Jennings was desirous of her feeling, for beside that the circumstance did not, in her opinion, justify such a lasting amazement or variety of speculation, her wonder was otherwise disposed of. It was engrossed by the extraordinary silence of her sister and Willoughby on the subject, which they must know to be particularly interesting to them all. As this silence continued, every day made it appear more strange and more incompatible with the disposition of them both. Why they should not openly acknowledge to her mother and herself what their constant behavior to each other declared to have been taken place, Eleanor could not imagine. She could easily conceive that marriage might not be immediately in their power, for though Willoughby was independent, there was no reason to believe him rich. His estate had been rated by Sir John at about six or seven hundred a year, but he lived in an expense to which that income could hardly be the equal, and he had himself often complained of his poverty. But for this strange kind of secret maintained by them to relative to their engagement, which in fact concealed nothing at all, she could not account, and it was so wholly contradictory to their general op- opinions and practice that a doubt sometimes entered her mind of them really being engaged, and this doubt was enough to prevent her from making any inquiries of Marianne. Nothing could be more expressive of attachment to them all, than Willoughby's behavior. To Marianne, it had all the distinguishing tenderness which a lover's heart could give, and to the rest of the family, it was the affectionate attention of a son and a brother. The cottage seemed to be considered and loved by him as his home. Many more of his hours were spent there than at Allenham. And if no general engagement collected them at the park, the exercise which called him out in the morning was almost certain of ending there which the rest of the day was spent by himself at the side of Miss Marianne and by his favorite pointer at her feet. One evening in particular, about a week after Colonel Brandon had left the country, his heart seemed more than usually open to every feeling of attachment to the objects around him. And on Mrs. Dashwood's happening to mention her design of improving the cottage in the spring, he warmly opposed every alteration of a place which affection had established as perfect with him. What, he exclaimed, Improve this dear cottage? No, that I will never consent to. Not a stone must be added to its walls, not an inch to its size, if my feelings are regarded. Don't be alarmed, said Miss Dashwood. Nothing of the kind will be done, for my mother will never have enough money to attempt it. I am heartily glad of it, he cried. May she always be poor if she can employ her riches no better. Thank you, Willoughby. But you may be assured that I would not sacrifice one sentiment of local attachment of yours or of anyone whom I love for all the improvements in the world. Depend upon it that whatever unemployed sum may retain when I make up my accounts in the spring. I would even rather lay it uselessly by than dispose of it in a manner so painful to you. But are you really so attached to this place as to see no defect in it? I am, said he. To me, it is faultless. "'Nay more. I consider it as the only form of building which happiness is attainable, and were I rich enough, I would instantly pull a comb down and build it up again in the exact plan of this cottage. With dark, narrow stairs and a kitchen that smokes, I suppose,' said Eleanor. "'Yes,' he cried in the same eager tone, "'with all and everything belonging to it, and no one convenience or inconvenience about it, should the least variation be perceptible.' Then, and only then, under such a roof, I might perhaps be as happy as come as I have been at Barton. I flatter myself, replied Eleanor, that even under the disadvantage of better rooms and a broader staircase, you would hereafter find your own house as faultless as you do this. There certainly are circumstances, says will- said Willoughby, which might greater, greatly endear it to me, but this place will always have one claim on my affection which no other can possibly share. Mrs. Dashwood looked with pleasure at Marianne, whose fine eyes were fixed so expressively on Willoughby as plainly denoted how well she understood him. "'How often did I wish,' added he, "'when I was at Allingham this twelvemonth, month that Barton College was inhabited. I never passed within view of it without admiring its situation and grieving that no one should live in it.' How little did I think, then, that the very first news I should hear from Mrs. Smith when I came into the country would be that Barton Cottage was taken, and I felt an immediate satisfaction and interest in the event, which nothing but the kind of prescience of what happiness I should experience from it can account for. Must it not have been so, Marianne? Speaking to her in a lowered voice, then continuing his former tone, he said, and yet this house you would spoil Mrs. Dashwood. You would rob it of its simplicity by imaginary improvement. And this dear parlor in which our acquaintance first began and in which so many happy hours have been spent by us together, you would degrade to the condition of a common entrance and everybody would be eager to pass through the room, which has hitherto contained within itself more real accommodation and comfort than any other apartment of the handsomest dimensions in the world could possibly afford. Mrs. Dashwood again assured him that no alteration of the kind should be attempted. "'You are a good woman,' he warmly replied. "'Your promise makes me easy. Extend it a little farther, and it will make me happy. Tell me that not only your house will remain the same, but that I shall never find you in yours as unchanged as your dwelling, and that you will always consider me with the kindness which has made everything belonging to you so dear to me.' The promise was readily given, and Willoughby's behavior during the whole of the evening declared at once his affection and happiness.' Shall we see you tomorrow to dinner, said Mrs. Dashwood when she was leaving them. I do not ask you to come in the morning, for we must walk to the park to call on Lady Middleton. He engaged to be with them by four o'clock. Chapter 15. Mrs. Dashwood's visit to Lady Middleton took place the next day, and two of her daughters went with her, but Marianne excused herself from being of the party under some trifling pretext of employment, and her mother, who concluded that a promise had been made by Willoughby the night before of calling on her while they were absent, was perfectly satisfied with her remaining at home. On their return from the park, they found Willoughby's curricle and servant waiting at the cottage, and Mrs. Dashwood was convinced that her conjecture had been just. So far, it was all just as she had foreseen, but on entering the house, she beheld what no foresight had taught her to expect— They were no sooner in the passage than Marianne came hastily out of the parlor, apparently in violent affliction, with her handkerchief at her eyes, and without noticing them, she ran upstairs. Surprised and alarmed, they proceeded directly into the room she had just quitted, where they found only Willoughby, who was leaning against the mantelpiece with his back towards them. He turned round on their coming in, and his countenance showed he was strongly partook of the emotion which overpowered Marianne. "'Is there anything the matter with her?' cried Mrs. Dashwood as she entered. "'Is she ill?' I hope not, he replied, trying to look cheerful and with a forced smile presently added. It is I who may rather expect to be ill, for I am now suffering under a very heavy disappointment. Disappointment? Yes, for I am unable to keep my engagement with you. Mrs. Smith has this morning exercised the privilege of riches upon a poor dependent cousin by sending me on business to London. I have just received my dispatches and taken my farewell of Allenham. And by way of exhilaration, I am now come to take my farewell of you. "'To London, are you going this morning? "'Almost this moment. "'This is very unfortunate, but Mrs. Smith must be obliged, "'and her business will not detain you from us long, I hope,' "'he colored as he replied. "'You are very kind, but I have no idea "'of returning into Devonshire immediately. "'My visits to Mrs. Smith are never repeated "'within the 12-month. "'And is Mrs. Smith your only friend? "'Is Allenham the only house in the neighborhood "'to which you would be welcome? "'For shame, Willoughby. "'Can you wait for an invitation here?' His color increased and his eyes fixed on the ground as he only replied, you are too good. Mrs. Dashwood looked at Eleanor with surprise. Eleanor felt equal amazement. For a few moments, everyone was silent. Mrs. Dashwood first spoke. I have only to add, my dear Willoughby, that at Barton College, you will always be welcome for I will not press you to return here immediately because you can only judge how far that might be pleasing to Mrs. Smith, and on this head I shall no more be disposed to question your judgment than to doubt your inclination. My engagements at present, replied Willoughby, confusedly, are of such a nature that I dare not flatter myself. He stopped. Mrs. Dashwood was too much astonished to speak, and another pause succeeded. This was broken by Willoughby, who said with a faint smile, It is folly to linger in this manner. I will not turn my... S- torment myself any longer by remaining among friends whose society is impossible for me now to enjoy he then hastily took leave of them all and left the room they saw him step into his carriage and in a minute he was out of sight mrs dashwood felt too much for speech and instantly quitted the parlor to give way in solitude to the concern and alarm which the sudden departure occasioned eleanor's uneasiness was at least equal to her mother's she thought of what had just passed with anxiety and distrust Willoughby's behavior in taking leave of them, his embarrassment, and his affection of cheerfulness, and above all his unwillingness to accept her mother's invitation, a backwardness so unlike a lover, so unlike himself, greatly disturbed her. One moment she feared that no serious design had ever been formed on his side, and the next that some unfortunate quarrel had taken place between him and her sister. The distress in which Marianne had quitted the room was such a serious quarrel could most reasonably account for. Though she considered what Marianne's love for him was, a quarrel seemed almost impossible. But whatever might be the particulars of their separation, her sister's affliction was indubitable. And she thought with the tenderest compassion of that violent sorrow, which Marianne was in all probability, not merely giving way to as a relief, but feeding and encouraging as a duty. In about half an hour, her mother returned and through her eyes were red. Her countenance was not uncheerful. Our dear Willoughby is now some miles from Barton, Eleanor, she said, as she sat down to work. And with how heavy a heart does he travel? It is all very strange, so suddenly to be gone. It seems but the work of a moment. And last night he was with us so happy, so cheerful, so affectionate. And now after only 10 minutes notice, gone without intending to return, something more than what he owed us must have happened. He did not speak. He did not behave like himself. You must have seen the difference as well as I. What can it be? Can they have quarreled? Why else should he have shown such unwillingness to accept your invitation here? It was not an inclination that he wanted, Eleanor. I could plainly see that. He had not the power of accepting it. I have thought it all over, and I assure you, and I can perfectly account for everything that at first seemed strange to as me as well as you. Can you indeed? Yes, I have explained it to myself in the most satisfactory way, but you, Eleanor... Who love to doubt where you can, it will not satisfy you. I know, but you shall not talk to me out of my trust in it. I am persuaded that Missus Smith suspects his regard for Marianne, disproves of it, perhaps be she, because she has other views for him, and on that account is eager to get him away. And that the business which she sends him off to transact is invented as some excuse to dismiss him. This is where I believe. This is what I believe to have happened. He is moreover aware that she does. Disapprove of the connection. He dares not, therefore, at present, to confess to her his engagement with Marianne, and he feels himself obliged from a dependent situation to give in to her schemes and absent himself from Devonshire for a while. You will tell me, I know, that this may or may not have happened, but I will listen to no avail unless you can point out any other method of understanding the affair as satisfactory as this. And now, Eleanor, what have you to say? Nothing, for you have anticipated my answer then you would have told me that it might or might not have happened. Oh, Eleanor, how incomprehensible are your feelings. You would rather take evil upon credit than good. You would rather look out for misery for Marianne and guilt for poor Willoughby than an apology from the latter. You are resolved to think him blamable because he took leave of us with less affection than his usual behavior is shown. And is no allowance to be made for inadvertence or for spirits depressed by recent disappointment? Are no probabilities to be accepted merely because they are not certainties? Is nothing due to the man whom we have all so much reason to love and no reason in the world to think ill of? To the possibility of motives unanswerable in themselves, though unvoidably secret for a while? And after all, what is it you suspect him of? I can hardly tell you myself, but the suspicion of something unpleasant is the inevitable consequence of such an alteration as we have just witnessed with him. There is great truth, however, in what you have now urged of the allowances which ought to be made for him, and it is my wish to be candid in my judgment of everybody. Willoughby may undoubtedly have very sufficient reasons for his conduct, and I will hope that he has, but it would have been more like Willoughby to acknowledge them at once. Secrecy may be advisable, but I cannot help wondering at it being practiced by him. Do not blame him, however, for departing from his character where the deviation is necessary, but you really do admit the justice of what I have said in his defense? I am happy, and he is acquitted. Not entirely. It may be proper to conceal their engagement if they are engaged from Mrs. Smith. And if that is the case, it must be highly expedient for Willoughby to be be but little in Devonshire at present. But this is no excuse for their concealing it from us. Concealing it from us? My dear child, do you accuse Willoughby and Marianne of concealment? This is strange indeed when your eyes have been reproaching them every day for incautiousness. I want no proof of their affection, said Eleanor, but of their engagement I do. I am perfectly satisfied of both. Yet not a syllable has said to you on the subject by either of them. I have not wanted syllables where actions have spoken so plainly. Has not his behavior to Marianne and to all of us for all the least of the last fortnight declared that he loved and considered her as his future wife and that he felt for us the attachment of the nearest relation Have we not perfectly understood each other? Has not my consent been daily asked by his looks, his manner, his attentive and affectionate respect? My Eleanor, is it possible to doubt their engagement? How could such a thought occur to you? How is it to be be supposed that Willoughby, persuaded as he must be of your sister's love, should leave her, and leave her perhaps for months without telling her of his affection, that they should part without a mutual exchange of confidence? I confess that the very circumstance except one is in favor of their engagement, but that one is in total silence of both on the subject, and with me it almost outweighs every other. How strange this is. You must think wretchedly indeed of Willoughby. If, after all, that is openly passed between them, you can doubt the nature of the terms on which they are on together. Has he been acting a part in his behavior to your sister all this time? Do you suppose him really indifferent to her? No, I cannot think that. He must and does love her. I am sure, but with strange kind of tenderness, if he can leave her with such indifference and carelessness of the future as you attribute to him, you must remember my dear mother that I have never considered this matter as certain. I've had my doubts. I confess, but they are fainter than they were early done away. If we find they correspond, every fear of mine will be removed. A Mighty concession. Indeed. If you were to see them at the altar, you would suppose they were not going to be married. Ungracious girl but I require no such proof. Nothing, in my opinion, has ever passed to justify doubt. No secrecy has been attempted. All has been uniformly open and unreserved. You cannot doubt your sister's wishes. It must be Willoughby, therefore, who you suspect. But why? Is he not a man of honor and feeling? Has there been any inconsistency on his side to create alarm? Can he be deceitful? I hope not. I believe not, cried Eleanor. I love Willoughby, sincerely love him, and suspicion of his integrity cannot be more painful to yourself than to me. It has been involuntary, and I will not encourage it. I was startled, I confess, by the alteration in his manners this morning. He did not speak like himself, and he did not return your kindness with any cordiality, but all of this may be explained by such a situation of his affairs as you have supposed. "'He has just parted from my sister "'and has seen her leave in the greatest affection. "'and if he felt obliged for fear of offending Mrs. Smith "'to resist the temptation of returning here soon, "'and yet aware that by declining your invitation, "'by saying that he was going away for some time, "'he should seem to act ungenerous, "'a suspicious part by our family, "'he might well be embarrassed and disturbed. "'In such a case, a plain and open avowal "'of his difficulties will have been more to his honor, "'I think, as well as more consistent "'with his general character.' but I will not raise objections against anyone's conduct on so illiberal a foundation as a difference in judgment from myself or a deviation from what I might think right and consistent. You speak very properly. Willoughby certainly does not deserve to be suspected. Though we have not known him long, he is no stranger in this part of the world. And who has ever spoken to his disadvantage? He Had he been in a situation to act independently and marry immediately, it might have been odd that he should leave us without acknowledging everything to me at once, but this is not the case. It is an engagement in some respects not prosperously begun, for their marriage must be at very uncertain distance, and even secrecy, as far as it can be observed, may now be very advisable. They were interrupted by the entrance of Margaret, and Eleanor was at was then at liberty to think over the representations of her mother, to acknowledge the probability of many, and hope for the justice of all. They saw nothing of Marianne till dinner time, when she entered the room and took her place at the table without saying a word. Her eyes were red and swollen, and it seemed as if her tears were even then restrained with difficulty. She avoided the looks of them all, could neither eat nor speak, and after some time on her mother silently pressing her hand with tender compassion, her small degree of fortitude was quite overcome. She burst into tears and left the room. This violent oppression of spirits continued the whole evening. She was without any power because she was without any desire of command over herself. The slightest mention of anything relative to Willoughby overpowered her in an instant, and though her family were most anxiously attentive to her comfort, it was impossible for them, if they spoke at all, to keep clear of every subject of which her feelings connected her with him. Chapter 16. Marianne would have thought herself very inexcusable had she been able to sleep at all the first night after parting from Willoughby. She would have been ashamed to look her family in the face the next morning had she not risen from her bed in more need of repose than when she lay down from it. But the feelings which made such composure a disgrace left her in no danger of incurring it. She was awake the whole night, and she wept the greatest part of it. She got up with a headache, was unable to talk, and unwilling to take any nourishment giving pain every moment to her mother and sisters, and forbidding all attempts at consolation from either. Her sensibility was potent enough. When breakfast was over, she walked out by herself and wandered about the village of Allenham, indulging the recollection of past enjoyment and crying over the present reverse for the chief of the morning. The evening passed off in the equal indulgence of feeling. She played over every favorite song that she had been used to play for Willoughby, every air in which their voices had often been joined and sat in the instrument gazing on every line of music that he had written out for her till her heart was so heavy that no farther sadness could be gained and this nourishment of grief was every day applied she spent whole hours at the pianoforte, alternately singing and crying her voice often totally suspended by her tears in books too as well as in music she courted the misery which a contrast between the past and present was certain of giving she read nothing but what they had been used to read together. Such violence of affliction, indeed, could not be supported for ever. It sunk within a few days into a calmer melancholy, but these employments, to which she daily recurred, her solitary walks and silent meditations, still produced occasional effusions of sorrow as lively as ever. No letter from Willoughby came, and none seemed expected by Marianne. Her mother was surprised, and Elinor again became uneasy. But Mrs. Dashwood could find explanations whenever she wanted them, which at least satisfied herself. Remember, Eleanor, said she, how often Sir John fetches our letters himself from the post and carries them to it. We have already agreed that secrecy may be necessary, and we must acknowledge that it could not be maintained if their correspondence were to pass through Sir John's hands. Eleanor could not deny the truth of this, and she tried to find it in a motive sufficient for their silence but there was one method so direct, so simple, and in her opinion, so eligible of knowing the real state of the affair and instantly removing all the mystery that she could not help suggesting it to her mother. Why do you not ask Marianne at once, she said, whether she is engaged or not to Willoughby? From you, her mother, and so kind, so indulgent a mother, the question could not give offense. It would be the natural result of your affection for her. She used to be all unreserve, and to you more especially, I would not ask such a question for all the world. Supposing it possible that they are not engaged, what distress would not such an inquiry inflict? At any rate, it would not be most ungenerous. I should never deserve her confidence again after forcing from her a confession of what is meant at present to be unacknowledged to anyone. I know Marianne's heart. I know that she dearly loves me and that I shall not be the last to whom the affair is made known. When circumstances make the relevant of it ineligible. I would not attempt to force the confidence of anyone, of a child much less, because of a sense of duty would prevent the denial with which her wishes might direct. Eleanor thought this generosity overstrained, considering her sister's youth, and urged the matter further, but in vain. Common sense, common care, common prudence were all sunk in Mrs. Dashwood's romantic delicacy. It was several days before Willoughby's name was mentioned before Marianne by any of her family. Sir John and Mrs. Jennings, indeed, were not so naive. Their witticisms added pain to many a painful hour, but one evening, Mrs. Dashwood, accidentally taking up a volume of Shakespeare, exclaimed, "'We have never finished Hamlet, Marianne. Our dear Willoughby went away before we could get through it. We will put it by, and when he comes again, but it may be months, perhaps, before that happens.'" "'Months!' cried Marianne with strong surprise. Nor, nor many weeks. Mrs. Dashwood was sorry for what she had said, but it gave Eleanor pleasure as as it produced a reply from Marianne so expressive of confidence in Willoughby and knowledge of his intentions. One morning, about a week after his leaving the country, Marianne was prevailed on to join her sisters in their usual walk instead of wandering away by herself. Hitherto, she had carefully avoided every companion in her rambles. If her sisters intended to walk on the downs, she directly stole away towards the lanes, and if They talked in the valley. She was as speedy in climbing the hills and could never be found when the others set off. But at length, she was secured by the exertions of Eleanor, who greatly disapproved such continual seclusion. They walked along the road through the valley and chiefly in silence, for Marianne's mind could not be controlled, and Eleanor, satisfied with gaining one point, would not then attempt more. Beyond the entrance of the valley, where the country through the rich sill was less wild and more open, a long stretch of the road which they had traveled on first, coming to Barton, lay before them. And on reaching that point, they stopped to look around and examine a prospect which formed in the distance of their view from the cottage, a spot which they had never happened to reach in any of their walks before. Amongst the objects in the scene, they soon discovered an animated one. It was a man on a horseback riding towards them. In a few minutes, they could distinguish him to be a gentleman, and in moments afterward, Marianne rapturously exclaimed, "'It is he! It is he indeed! I know it is!' and was hastening to meet him when Eleanor cried out, "'Indeed, Marianne, I think you are mistaken. "'It is not, Willoughby. "'The person is not tall enough for him, and he has not his air. "'He has! He has!' cried Marianne. "'I'm sure he has. His air, his coat, his horse. "'I knew how soon he would come.' She walked eagerly on as she spoke and Eleanor, to screen Marianne from particularity as soon as she felt almost certain of it's not being Willoughby, quickened her pace and kept up with her. They were soon within 30 yards of the gentleman. Marianne looked again, her heart sunk within, and abruptly turning around, she was hurrying aback when the voices of both her sisters were raised to detain her. A third, almost as well as known as Willoughby's, joined them in begging her to stop. She turned around with surprise to see and welcome Edward Ferris. He was the only person in the world who could at the moment be forgiven for not being Willoughby and the only one who could have gained a smile from her. But she dispersed her tears to smile on him and in her sister's happiness forgot for a time of her own disappointment. He dismounted and giving his horse to a servant, walked back with them to Barton, whether he was purposely coming to visit them. He was welcomed by them all with great cordiality, but especially by Marianne, who showed more warmth of regard for her reception of him than ever Eleanor to himself. To Marianne, indeed, the meeting between Edward and her sister was not but a continuation of that unaccountable coldness which she had often observed at New Orleans in their mutual behavior. On Edward's side, more particularly, there was a deficiency of all that a lover ought to look and say on such an occasion. He was confused, seemed scarcely sensible of pleasure in seeing them, looked neither rapturous nor gay, said little but what was forced on him by questions, and distinguished Eleanor by no mark of affection. Marianne saw and listened with increasing surprise. She began almost to feel a dislike of Edward, and it ended, as every feeling must end with her, by carrying back her thoughts to Willoughby, whose manners formed a a contrast sufficiently striking to those of his brother-elect. After a short silence, which succeeded the surprise and inquiries of meeting, Marianne asked Edward if he came directly from London. No, he had been in Devonshire a fortnight. A fortnight, she repeated, surprised at his being so long in the same country with Eleanor without seeing her before. He looked rather distressed as he added that he had been staying with some friends near Plymouth. Have you lately been in Sussex? said Eleanor. I was at Norland about a month ago. And how does dear, dear Norland look? cried Marianne. Dear, dear Norland, said Eleanor, probably looks as much as it always does this time of year, the woods and walks thickly covered with dead leaves. Oh, cried Marianne, with what transporting sensations have I formerly seen them fall? How have I delighted as I walked to see them driven in showers about me by the wind? What feelings have they, the season, the air altogether inspired, now that there is no one to regard them? They are seen only as a nuisance, swept hastily off and driven as much as possible from the sight. It is not everyone, said Eleanor, who has your passion for dead leaves. No, my feelings are not often shared, not often understood, but sometimes they are. As she said this, she sunk into a reverie for a few moments, but rousing herself again. Now, Edward, said she, calling his attention to this prospect, here's Barton Valley. Look up to it and be tranquil if you can. Look at those hills. Did you ever see their equals? To the left is Barton Park, amongst those woods and plantations. You may see one end of the house, and there, beneath the farthest hill, which rises with such grandeur, is our cottage. It is a beautiful country, he replied, but these bottoms must be dirty in winter. How can you think of dirt with such objects before you? Because, replied he, smiling, among the rest of the objects before me, I see a very dirty lane. How strange, said Marianne to herself as she walked on. Have you an agreeable neighborhood here? Are the Middletons pleasant people? No, not at all, answered Marianne. We could not be more unfortunately situated. Marianne, cried her sister, how can you say so? How can you be so unjust? They are a very respectable family, Mr. Ferris, and towards us they've behaved in the friendliest manner. Have you forgot, Marianne, how many pleasant days we've owed to them? No, said Marianne in a low voice, nor how many painful moments. Eleanor took no notice of this and directing her attention to their visitor endeavored to support something like discourse with him by talking of their present residence, its conveniences, etc., extorting from him occasional questions and remarks. His coldness and reserve mortified her severely and she was vexed and half angry, but resolving to regulate her behavior to him by the past rather than the present. She avoided every appearance of resentment or displeasure and treated him as she thought he ought to be treated from the family connection.